Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. I'm Karen Hardy, and I'm the president of Hardy Associates, so currently consulting. And I work, I've, my whole career, I've been working in family planning and reproductive health and population and development, and uh, more recently, climate change. And I have a PhD from uh, Cornell University's International Population Program in their Department of Development Sociology. So I've, I'm a, I call myself a social demographer. So I'm all interested in, always been interested in the intersection between gender, culture, population, societies, and health programming. And, and as I said, more recently, climate change. And I, I got interested in the topic of population and climate change when I was working at an organization called Population Action International, and we got funding to look at from a donor to look at the links between population and climate change. So I had the great fortune of working with a really world-class demographer, Dr. Lei Wen Zhang, who was at the time doing sort of the population parts of, of climate models. So really, really learned a lot from him and, and collaborated with him. When we speak of population, can you explain succinctly what population is from first principle? Yes, population is a funny word because it's just a, a group of something that we're interested in. But for here, we're talking about human population. So we can think about the population of a country, for example, and, and adding up the populations of all the countries, we get to the, to the world population. So populations can change in three ways. It's actually Fair, you know, pretty, pretty simple. There are births, which we talk about fertility and number of children. There are, of course, deaths. We talk about mortality and, you know, when, when people die, how many people die. And we talk about migration, both moving within a country, but moving also outside of countries. But of course, then we can disaggregate uh, all of those things by a lot of different, a lot of different factors. For example, sex, male, female, you know, genders, age where the people work, live in, in cities, towns, or, or rural areas, socioeconomic factors. So there are a lot of ways that we can use those data on births, deaths, and migration. I think you've probably heard that the world's population just reached 8 billion. And, but, and we're currently adding, what people don't always realize is we're currently adding 80 million people a year to the world's population. So that's the equivalent of, of 10 New York cities or maybe the country of Germany, every year we're adding to the world's population. Uh, so while the world's population is still growing, um, although this year it's uh, you know um, under 1% growth, it's such a big base that even 1% growth on you know, 8 billion people is, is, is still is a lot of growth. But we have this issue now where we have some countries, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, that are still growing quite rapidly with high fertility rates. But we're also hearing in a lot of other places in the world, including, I mean, we've heard for, about Japan for many years, but most recently China, which was concerned about its population earlier, but now all of a sudden is, is you know, is considered to have an, an aging population. So the, there's sort of a bit of an unbalance in the world's population of rapidly growing and then rapidly aging places. So it's very, uh, very interesting. 
But the the United Nations suggests that the world's population will the world the United Nations has a population division that does these statistics, and it it's uh, estimating that the world will be about nine point seven billion by twenty fifty, and about a, a little over ten billion by the year twenty twenty one hundred. But that's considered the median variant projection. They do the UN does three projections. They do a high variant, medium variant, and low variant population projection. And the difference in that, which is so interesting, people don't realize also, is half a child. So for example, the, yeah, so half a child more from the median variant gets you to the high variant and half a child less gets you to the, gets you to the low variant. And in 2021, the average, the world's average birth rate stood at 2.3 births per woman. And that's down from five births per woman in 1950. So really huge um, declines in infertility in the world. Um, and it's projected to be, to be more like 2.1 um, births per child in, in, tw- in 2050. Why might population impede us from creating solutions or overcoming climate change? So it's really important to understand how population is situated in the science around climate change and in the discourse around climate change and to avoid drawing simplistic conclusions about it and to differentiate the science from the politics. Because you can imagine, think about the dimensions of population that I just talked about, births, deaths, and migration. You know, there's the, there's the we can add all of those things, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But they all have social implications. And so, that as, as you can imagine, there are huge sensitivities around, maybe not so much about, about, uh, about um, mortality, but around fertility and migration. As, as we know, there are huge uh, sensitivities. So the easiest way to think about population and climate change is that population is a variable in climate models. So we have to think about it. And the best way to think about it is through this, the IPAT equation. And this was something that was developed in the 1970s to look at our environmental impact. And that to say is that the human impact on greenhouse gas emissions is a function of population. So there's our population variable and sort of affluence, you know, the, the, the GDP, gross domestic product per capita, and also technology or the, uh, the impact per, per unit of, of consumption. And that IPAT equation is really it's sort of at the center of, of a lot of climate modeling. It's, I mean, much more sophisticated uses of it, but it sort of boils, boils down to that. It gets very complicated very quickly. And, you know, you have to, so the, the, the models that the climate scientists do have to look at all of those factors. And when one, when one goes up, what happens to the others? And, and uh, so it really is trying to look at what is the impact of, of population in these models, depending on the assumptions that, that you put in. But you, we know, I think, we, that most of the attention in looking at climate change has been on energy-efficient technologies, which is the energy efficiency part of the CHI identity, and also renewable energy, uh, carbon, carbon storage, and nuclear energy, which is the carbon efficiency piece of it. So, Okay, so those are that's sort of what we most people think of when you think of like doing something about climate change. So, what about population? The early studies on on population, basically, you know, controlling for some other factors, 
basically showed that a 1% increase in uh, population growth was associated with a 1% um, increase in carbon emissions. So that was sort of the, the first, the first um, you know, looking at the relationship. But the studies since then, that was probably in 1990, the studies since then have become far more complex and sophisticated because that, those early studies just sort of assumed an average consumption of all, of all people in a group. And we know that, you know, that's just simply, simply not true. So it, uh, urbanization makes a difference. Age structure makes a difference. Numbers of people in a household make a difference. So it turns out, not surprisingly, that there are, you know, very significant differences among, among groups, both, both between populations, but also within, within populations, within, within countries. So it's the, the issue with population is that the areas with low population growth, which is the, the high income countries, of course, have huge, much higher emit rates of emission per capita emissions than the countries with the high population growth, which is sub Saharan Africa and some, there, some, there are some other countries in, in, in Asia, for example. So that's been the huge sensitivity about, about population trying to address population in, in climate change because it makes it sound like you're, you're saying, oh, well, if, you, if, if people in you know, sub-Saharan Africa just have fewer children, we'll solve climate change, and, and, you know, which is absolutely not the case. Nobody's really saying that, but you can, you can imagine it sort of gets people's sort of hackle, hackles up um, when, you, when you start talking about it. You know, and because the, you know, the Project Drawdown, which is a, a group that's looking for solu practical solutions to address climate change, they say, you know, 10% of people globally, it generate almost half of the uh, consumption-related emissions, while the areas of Africa, you know, the, sub the continent of Africa, are, they're responsible over time for about 4% of, of global emissions. But, okay, so with that said... Pop, you know, addressing population in the long run does make a difference in, in these climate models. Some colleagues, like my colleague Lewin Zhang and, and his colleague Brian O'Neill and others did have done very sophisticated sort of population modeling in, in climate models and really have found that over, you know, that it won't make a difference in the short run because, you know, demographics are, you know, they're hard, they're hard to change in the very short term. But in the long term, they, they said that if you take the world takes the low path of the, of, you know, the population projections, there, that could make, reduce global emissions by 15% by 2050 and 40 to 60% by 2021. So really, you know, quite a significant difference. And part of that is because people in the global south where population is growing, you know, their, their sort of consumption levels of consumption now are actually quite low compared to the, you know, high income countries, of course, but nobody wants them to stay at that, those levels of consumption. So as, as their populations grow and their consum consumption increases, that, that's sort of what is, what makes, what makes, what makes the difference. So, so, you know, going on the lower path of population growth would, uh, would, would be helpful. How might we mitigate or eliminate some of the obstacles that population presents for climate solutions? So the best thing really is to is to invest in quality education 
and writes what we call human rights-based family planning with no coercion, not, not, you know, in any case saying to women, you, you know, you can only have this many children or, I mean, what's happening now in countries with, with low fertility is there's just this sort of like, oh my goodness, the, you know, the world is imploding. There aren't enough people in the world have more babies. So, so, you know, there's sort of, for what that, that's sort of called pronatal, pronatalist coercion, which is just as bad as, as uh, sort of coercion of telling people that they can only have a certain number of, a certain number of children. So, but what we found again over is, you don't, that, that could, any kind of coercive program is absolutely not necessary. If you just give, give people the, the choice, give them the autonomy to make those decisions, you know, that they, they, they make the right decisions. So, so that's, that's really the first, but the issue is because it's so sensitive, it's not included in discussions of, in climate change, when the, the party convention of parties that you've probably heard of, the, there's one in Scotland. I think there's something coming up in Egypt. There's the Paris agreement, Copenhagen. I'm some, probably hearing about some of these some of these climate meetings, population is just the elephant in the room. Nobody, nobody wants to take it on because they say it's just too sensitive. And if we do, we just get criticized. So we need to look at the factors that are in climate in sort of the drivers of climate. There's an international um, panel on climate change, which is the IPCC, which is uh, a group of, you know, world scientists from, from around the world. And they put out periodic assessment reports. And the latest assessment report is was from um, just a was a, number six just came out a couple of a couple of years ago, and they said um, this was this was in the body of the scientific report. Globally, GDP per capita and population growth remain the strongest drivers of CO two emissions from fossil fuel consum- uh, combustion in the last decade, and they said that those two things dwarfed. Any improvements in the, again, the reduction in the use of energy per unit of GDP, which is another one of those terms, and then as well as improvements in the carbon intensity of energy. So scientists just a couple of years ago saying population is still a really important factor. But that was in the body of the report, which is, you know, probably thousands of pages you have to find it. It did not make it into the summary it mm-hmm. goes to policymakers. So it just gets buried, unfortunately. What are some of the best resources to learn more about population in relation to climate change? I would say looking at Project Drawdown, an initiative that, that, is, that brings the, to bear the sort of the best scientific evidence of solutions. So again, a couple of years ago, Project Drawdown, and they have a website that you, that um, listeners can, can, uh, can find, sort of updated the information on the evidence on 93 solutions. And what they found in that is that family planning and education, particularly girls' education, was in the top 10 of these, of these climate solutions. So, so again, good, really good, really good evidence there and really interesting um, website. You can sort of play around with it and see, you know, the, the, what, what, the, how, what, what the different solutions look like. There's also a, the world scientists warning into action. There was a group of, a group of scientists. This was also published in, in 2021. 
15 world scientists writing about six urgent areas relate, uh, related to addressing climate change. So they, they look at energy, atmospheric pollutants, nature, food, population, and the economy. So that, that's a real, just a nice paper to sort of see how it all, because it's not just, oh, just do something about population and climate change goes away by any means, but, but it's, you know, it's one of the important contributors to, to solutions or climate change. And just if anybody's sort of interested in the topic of, you know, the sort of how population links to climate change, I just, the, the, the colleague that I was talking about, I mean, I wrote a paper, sort of a, a paper that's, that's more of a, for a general audience to really understand how population matters, how population trends matter for climate change. And it's, so it's, I guess it's sort of a bit of a, a primer for those of us who are not like climate scientists. Cause I, oh my goodness, when they would start talking, I'd be like, what, what's that? What, that's that again? <laughs> so it's sort of, it's just sort of late lays it out in general terms. And so I would say those are probably some, some real, some good, good resources. Right now you're speaking to passionate students who want to actually solve problems like these. What top three skills should they study so that they actually have the ability to do so? Oh my goodness. I would say, and gosh, I always say this, you know, t do what you really like doing. You know, if you're, if you're really into the numbers, study demography, statistics, big, big data, you know, there's census data. There's just so much demographic data that, that you could be looking at. Do you like to make, do you like to know the system and how to make changes? You know, do some, do some public policy, learn, learn some public policy because I think the thing that I've really found is it's one thing to have the science on your side and to be able to, you know, talk about the science, but it's a whole nother thing to understand the system in which decisions are made about, about that science. So I've uh, been really interesting learning about the, the UN Convention Framework on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and, you know, how, how these, these meetings work and how decisions are made. So, so, you know, study, study public policy if, if that's what you're really interested in and knowing how to advocate for change, you know, study, study advocacy, advocacy techniques, digital media. There are just so many ways, you know, to, you could get involved in the modeling, you could get involved in the policy, get involved in the health aspects. There's, there's always a need to, you know, to do more to advance, you know, reproductive rights, reproductive health and, you know, to ensure women's autonomy and empowerment. So that's a whole nother, whole nother area. So, so gosh, there's just so many things that you, that you could study, but, but again, just base it on what you'd love to do. I would say. Any final recommendations for the audience? Oh my goodness. Get involved. I think, I don't know. I, I, it feels like, you know, when I got involved 15 years ago, you know, and saw some of the, some of the science and, and, and the predictions of some of the things that we're going through these, the heat wave that, that our country is going through right now in the U S the the flooding the droughts it's just it was it's all been it's all been predicted so so but it feels like now is the time that people really need to sort of pay attention and you know advocate for change do whatever we can one of the really interesting statistics is that the carbon footprint of an additional child in high income countries is huge in comparison to you know, almost anything else that we can do, recycling, you know, driving electric cars, getting rid of cars. So that's not to say don't have children. It really is not that that's not the, but, but just to, you know, just to sort of be aware and, and think about, you know, making sure that the, ch the children that people do have are wanted children 
And, you know, and, and again, which gets back to, you know, women's autonomy and, you know, all of that. So it's, a, it's a huge area. There's so, there's just so much to do. So pick, pick your passion and dive in, I would say. We heard Karen discuss the scientists' projections for population growth. To coincide population further, imagine you're designing a sustainable city that accommodates projected population growth while minimizing carbon emissions. Sketch or describe the city layout, transportation systems, and green spaces that promote climate resilience. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University.